if I have natural resource energy in the ground, I'm a Canadian or I'm Russia, they're pumping valuable natural resource energy out of the ground and currently they're being paid in US dollars. Wouldn't it be smarter for them to take payments in digital energy? When that happens, that's the de facto change where Bitcoin becomes the reserve asset of the world. All right, Mr. Greg Foss, thank you so much for coming on On The Margin. Really excited to have you here. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you have the distinction of being both the first Canadian and ex-high-yield uh, bond trader uh, on the show ever. So we got a twofer right out of the way. Boom, I'm going to check a couple boxes. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, yeah. thanks for that. That's... Uh, yes. Yeah. Very, very excited. I, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking on the show. I, I consider myself a somewhat of a, an honorary Canadian, actually, just by virtue of having a, a cabin up there. Um, but it's been tough. The border's been closed. I haven't been able to get up. My family, we haven't been able to get up there for like two years now. And my, I'm the flip side. I, I grew up going to Maine, uh, and I've actually uh, haven't been to. Uh, I a few years ago we decided to take the plunge, and uh, we own a place on the on the beach in Maine. And uh, I've been the reverse. I can't get down to one of my favorite spots in the world. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this stuff clears up soon, right? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. But uh, <laughs> in the meantime, we'll just have to wish. Um, well, Greg, thanks. I, I've been super, super excited for this. I was telling you, uh, you know, before we got on here, I think you did one of the best interviews of the entire year with uh, Preston Pish uh, before. So you set the bar extremely high. Uh, we're going to see what we can do here today on on the margin. Um, but, you know, before we kind of get into it, uh, I'd love to actually just get a sense of your background. Um, you're probably one of not very many folks who traded high yield bonds back in the day, who's now into Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, and I know you started your career at just a super interesting time, right? In 1988, right after Black Monday, can you give us a sense of what it was like getting started at that time in finance? Sure. Uh, well, yeah, so um, I remember that very clearly. Uh, Black Monday was... Uh, there was a new thing in the in the in the market called portfolio insurance, right? And uh, that was a strategy that they just basically hedged their long positions in equities with uh, S and P futures, and uh, everything looks great on paper until it unravels and uh, things go no bid. And they had the I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure they they closed down or had had halt trading halts. Uh, I know they have the step the step function now if it, if it if it falls by a certain amount. I don't remember in the day, but I still remember sitting on the couch because I was down in I was down at Cornell University in upstate New York, and so I say down, but uh, yeah, down from Canada, uh, upstate New York, and sitting on a couch thinking, my God, I just paid all this money to go to school in the U.S. and there's going to be no financial system for me to come back to and work and work in, right? So that was in October 1987. I graduated in 1988. So um, it was uh, it was less than one year later. Uh, I started working at, uh, I came back to Canada and worked at the uh, Royal Bank of Canada, Canada's largest inst financial institution. And my first project, I was working directly for the CFO. And uh, my first project was to uh, work on the Latin American debt situation that not only Royal Bank of Canada, but essentially every single money center bank in the world was exposed to, which was petrodollar debt that uh, needed to be, or petrodollars that were uh, recycled into loans into Mexican and other lesser developed country debt. So 
these loans were U.S. dollar based. And as always happens, when you borrow in a currency that's not your own, like uh, the South American countries did, uh, the U.S. dollar rallied their currency uh, started to uh, to sewer and uh, they had to default on their debts. So uh, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady proposed a brilliant solution so that banks would not have to write down the value of their debt. Mm. And it was called the Brady bond solution. So just to quickly run through that though, is the bonds were trading at about 25 cents on the dollar, that's the loans. And not that there was much trading taking place, but those loans trading at 25 cents on the dollar uh, with, uh, again, not huge volume, but amongst various hedge funds and everything, um, were five-year loans that had defaulted. And uh, the banks had not written them down from 100 cents on the dollar down to 25 cents on the dollar. Because if they had to, and the Royal Bank of Canada was not in its, uh, was not unique in this, every single other money center bank in the world was in the same situation, Royal Bank of Canada would have been insolvent, Okay. What does that mean? It just means they would have evaporated their book value of equity by writing down the value of these loans to market. So Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady said, here's the solution. We're going to uh, turn it from a five-year loan into a 30-year loan. We're going to collateralize the principal with U.S. Treasury zero-coupon bonds. And the pure mathematics of it made it that that zero-coupon bond would accrete back to 100 cents on the dollar over a 30-year period and therefore you did not have to write down in the present the value of the loan from 100 cents to 25 cents, right? So a 75% haircut, uh, which again would have evaporated or would have used up all the book value of equity of these major financial institutions. So brilliant solution, a little bit of accounting gimmickry. I picked the right one because it was uh, there were two options. There was Brady par bonds and Brady discount uh, bonds. And uh, I was pretty proud because about uh, two days after I picked a 100% par option for our bank, uh, Goldman Sachs came out and basically said that was the right solution. Anyone who picked the discount option was leaving two or three cents in present value on the table. And we had a billion dollars of loan. And so two or three cents was 20 to 30 million US dollars is what the value of my, uh, hey, I made the right decision. So I'm pumped. I'm like, hey, I just helped the bank recoup 20 or 30 million US dollars. And my bonus at the end of the year was sort of like non-existent, okay? And I'm like, this is garbage, you know? Uh, I, I helped the bank skate. And I also told the CFO, and I love the man. I said, Emil. I think these bonds are cheap at 25 cents on the dollar. We should buy more. Now that's antithesis to a banker, right? No, 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 I've made all my loans at 100 cents on the dollar. Why would I ever buy more at 25 cents on the dollar? So they didn't buy anymore. Over time, those bonds actually traded higher than 100 cents on the dollar because of interest rates and all the components that went into valuing them. But point being, you always have to be valuing things on a risk-adjusted basis. And I, a bank is a horrible risk manager, okay? Banks are probably the worst risk managers around, bankers, because they make loans at 100 cents on the dollar, but God forbid they should ever buy any loans at 25 cents on the dollar, right? Oh, I blew my load at 100 cents on the dollar. Let's just drive on and pray that uh, things work out. So. I turned that experience, I worked for the Royal Bank of Canada for uh, 
about three years and um, I said, you know what, I, I, I like the experience, I'm never, but I, I really want to turn it into something else. And so that's eventually I, I, I ended up trading and becoming a trader of distressed and high yield bonds in Canada. And yeah, that's, that's my sort of roundabout way of getting from uh, the Black Monday crash to, okay, here's how the world solves itself in the short term, uh, meaning the entire global financial system was probably insolvent, not just probably, it certainly was. Many financial analysts did not realize that. Certainly most of equity holders had no clue, okay, but the inherent leverage in the banking system is totally misunderstood by 99% of the population. They just believe that banks are too big to fail, which is generally true. Mm. They're too big to fail. They will have a government backstop. That government backstop is essentially what? The ability to print money. So since 1988, and I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I already have. Since 1988, I was looking for the solution to this fiat Ponzi. And that's, that's the best way I could lay it out. Now, I never found the solution because, you know, I wasn't really a gold bug. I enjoyed trading credit and there's always a price for everything. Meaning just because you make a loan at 8% uh, and the credit quality deteriorates, does that mean you should never buy more of that same loan at 15%? Mm. My answer is no. If it at 15%, you think that it it's stabilizing and, and will skate itself back into uh, the ability to make repayments? Well, then you should probably buy more. Mm. And anyway, uh, that's a very hard education process to make to most people, uh, particularly in the fixed income space, because they just don't think in that uh, in that logic. They always think of bonds are for capital preservation and equities are for capital appreciation. So equity guys take all the risk and bond guys aren't supposed to take a lot of risk, but bonds are asymmetric to the downside. It's a horrible, it's a horrible existence. You never get, you know, the, the, the rocket ships because if a company issues debt at 8% and then their credit quality improves, generally they refinance at a lower coupon and you never, you never, uh, you don't accrete that good investment decision at an 8% coupon over the life of the uh, over the life of the investment. But conversely, when it goes the other way, well, yeah, I'll keep paying an 8% coupon when in fact they should be paying a 15% coupon. You know what I mean? So then the price of the bond adjusts accordingly to make up that uh, thing. So long-winded approach. Sorry, guys. Here's the point. There's a price for everything. Fiat's a Ponzi. Bonds are a fiat contract, therefore bonds are programmed to debase. It's it's that simple, and I don't want to end the the the, the podcast here, but that that'll basically be that's, my that's the, my pitch. That's the TLDR here, yeah, uh, that's right. But that's that's and I definitely want to get into. You have this really great way of just laying it out in a super simple, very math focused way. I love I love the the way you kind of put things in in numbers. It super, makes it super easy to understand. Take Thank me back you. though when. You know, so a lot of people say that your very first experience in markets or as an investor really colors your perspective for your entire investing career, right? So you're kind of fresh out of school, right? You're, you, you kind of just watched um, the entire U.S. financial system look like it might collapse in 1987. You see the largest financial institution in Canada be insolvent and nobody talks about it. 
what were you kind of thinking at the time? Like, I'm sure they didn't cover that, right, in, in uh, Economics 101, right? <laughs> they certainly didn't. Um, what it teaches you is the difference between real life and textbook learning. Um, the, uh, the reality is, and I'll say, I'll state it again, <clears throat> the amount of the world that did not understand how banking actually works is very scary, including all of our politicians. Okay. That's a given. Mm. They don't understand how banking works. For example, they don't understand that for every hundred dollars of loans that a bank makes, they only hold $4 of risk absorbing equity capital. That means 96% of the loan is either other depositors' money, other financial institutions' money, meaning interbank deposits, or subordinate debt. So, man, oh man, are you telling me that most loans don't change in value by 4% over the life of that loan? Come on. But that's what banking is, 25 times levered, and it was worse in 1988. So... When I say worse, it was more levered. The system, you know, it, it, it's they, they've made some checks and balances, but it still is just a very eye-opening experience. And God forbid they should ever teach you that in finance because you'd get a whole bunch of people coming out of NBA school and the like saying, this is dumb, but <laughs> it's the way it works. Mm. Why is it the way it works? Honestly, there, there's a great quote. I think Henry Ford, right, said this, like, it's a good thing that, the majority of people don't know how the financial system exists or they'd never put their money in it, right? Or they, they said bold. basically there'd be a revolution. I think he said something along the lines, there'd be a revolution tomorrow morning. So it works that way because that's how a bank can, that's the only way a bank can generate an appropriate return on, uh, it's called the DuPont formula, okay? So return on equity is equal to your return on assets times your asset to equity uh, look it up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get pe bored people. The DuPont formula, it allows a bank to make the appropriate return on equity for its, for the risk of the equity holder, meaning they're using leverage. Cause otherwise, you know, a bank that makes a loan at a 1% interest margin, meaning their cost of deposits could be 4% and their loan is yielding 5%. So that a hundred basis points, you won't get a lot of equity owners at 100% or zero leverage that want just a 1% return, right? They need to lever that and they lever it 25 to 1. So that 1% margin turns into a 25%. Now that's an interesting return on equity proposition, isn't it? Mm. Problem is it's return on equity that has it's not a problem the reality is it has a backstop because who in their right mind would put their savings into a bank at 96 cents on the dollar that's how much deposits are in there and the bank can blow it and overnight your deposits could be blown out the door well that's why bank run, runs happen and everything so it's just that's basically because the system works that way you need it to attract the equity investor with an appropriate return on equity that uh, that will attract investors in that equity versus Amazon or you know all the other equities in the world that offer much larger returns on equity. So here's my question for you because I I understand that argument right and my framework for looking at how the financial system is built is essentially they don't model in black swan events right so you're you're talking about a system that's inherently structurally levered right and actually it's 
Uh, it's pretty Correct. crazy for me to even hear you say four dollars of equity capital for every hundred. You know, you hear these statistics about Lehman Brothers being levered thirty-three times to one in uh, 08, and you're like, oh my god, they were a hedge fund. Of course, they were going to blow up. But now, what I'm hearing you say is it's not even that wildly far off the status quo. No, thirty-three is just three percent equity, right? Like, it, honestly, I think <laughs> if you insane. if you just take though, if you take um, on balance sheet and off balance sheet liabilities. Mm. Lehman was probably levered 90 to 1. Okay, so was Bear Stearns. What a goof, right? 90 to 1 leverage. And high yield is risky? Come on. High yield is, you know, levered maybe 4 or 5 to 1 to cash flow. <laughs> These guys are levered. It, it, it just, it, it's so crazy. And that is my biggest thing is the leverage in the financial system is inherent to uh, requiring inflation in assets because that's the only way that the game can continue. Okay. As long as your asset that you've loaned against is increasing in value, everything is fine. So here's my, I'm curious to see what you think about this, right? There, there's an inherent uh, misalignment of incentives in the entire structure of the financial system then, because when you talk about a backstop, right, for this entire system, who is the real who really holds the purse and the paycheck? It is the time of the citizens of a country, right? That because when when there's a when there's a, a bailout essentially of banks, the, the people who are picking up the check is the taxpayer, right? Oh yeah. Or am I missing? Yeah. No, and, well, yeah, they are until it makes no sense anymore because now you can argue that the taxpayers picking up these debts that that we're amassing right now, but there's no point because there's no point in even raising taxes because you'll never skate yourself on side. We've gotten to a point where it is mathematically impossible to do that. But going back in history to your question, yes, there was a time when it was, it made sense, but ultimately the backstop rested in the hands of the citizens and the ability of the government to, uh, to tax that citizens. The, the citizenry. Yeah. People, I feel like people don't really understand that. Um, and even when you talk about kind of UBI and helicopter money and people just getting quote unquote free money, there's no, there's no such thing as, as that, right? Essentially, when you print more money, you're just diluting. What are you when you're a holder of US dollars? You're kind of a, you're a holder in a quasi equity form of like what the US no, no, is. no, you're not no equity. You're you're a debtor. So you own a liability. If you own yeah. if you own a US dollar, you have a lie. You own a liability uh, and that liability is guaranteed to debase mathematical certainty. Uh, so, yeah, that's a tough thing. So don't I'm not saying the fiat system is uh, I will say a fiat system is a horrible store of value. I won't say the fiat system is uh, a horrible way of commerce and and uh you know removing the need for barter uh trading a car for seven motorcycles or or anything like that you know everything has a price and that's what a currency is for when the government treats that currency as a life preserver by printing more and more of it well that just accelerates the debasing of the currency and you saw it today or maybe you didn't did you see stan druckenmiller, druckenmiller on cn on CNBC today, right? He's saying, look, within 15 years, the U.S. will lose reserve currency status in the world. And I think that's mathematically probable. That's that's a tough thing because, look, I live in Canada where our currency is just not even important compared to the U.S. dollar. 
and while we're within you know we work the largest trading partner of the United States at one point we may be number two now after can after China but Canada is the largest trading partner of the United States yet we just don't matter okay we are a G7 country but we don't matter it's all about what happens in the United States and uh, you know that's that's dangerous because uh, the United States is well on their way to uh, continuing this uh, this uh, ability to think they can print their way to prosperity. You cannot. You cannot print your way to prosperity. You can solve problems in the short term, but if you don't pay back the debt that you've used, then you just compound, which was typically the way that uh, politicians always approach this problem. Um, then it just continues to build. And here's a neat stat. I looked this up the other day. So right now the United States is going to have to uh, to invoke the, the, the debt ceiling, right? To, to uh, ask Congress to remove the debt ceiling. And Janet Yellen famously on Friday, she goes, I listened to this on CNBC. She goes, well, there's a series of extraordinary measures we can employ that aren't actually that extraordinary because we do it on such a regular basis that we will be able to uh, you know, raise our debt ceiling. So I said, I wonder how many times they've done this. Since 1960, the U.S. has raised their debt ceiling 78 times. <laughs> 78. Okay, come on. So why even pretend what? that there's such a thing called a debt ceiling? Like, what a bunch of clowns, right? Like, it's it's like, oh, yeah, we're being really fiscal, fiscally responsible, so we've invoked this thing called a debt ceiling but we've broken it 78 times in a row. Man, oh man. Okay, so, I mean, you brought up the Stan Druckenmiller interview. That that was kind of the headline, right? That the US will lose reserve currency status in 15 years. But there was another thing that absolutely blew my mind. So he looked at the, if, if the yield on the 10 year, right, were to yes. rise to within the lower band of where it's historically been, which is about, I forget what he said, about four, four and a half percent. That's right, 4%, four percent, yeah, yeah. Like that. Then, 30% of US GDP would be required. 30% no, of the revenues, 30% of the tax revenues would be required to pay down, essentially service the debt. Service the debt, correct. So imagine if you raise a, for every dollar of debt, oh, excuse me, for every dollar of tax revenue you collect, imagine if 30% 30, 30 of that is going to pay back only interest. It's not going to fund any government programs. It's not going to, uh, you know, help anything. It's not even being able to be used to pay down the debt. My God, that's 30 cents out of every dollar. Now he was, Stan is a brilliant man. And he basically said where it should be historically, which is about 4%. I'll, I'll help out the math even more. It doesn't even matter if it's 3%. Okay, Michael, it does not matter because at 3%, it doesn't work. Okay, very simply, when total global debt to total global GDP is where we are right now, it is impossible for the denominator, which is basically your tax base, to grow quick enough to keep pace just with the organic growth of the numerator, which is your interest growth of your debt. Okay, Stan was hitting the same thing. A little, a little bit more, uh, a little bit lower in the income statement. I'll just tell you, look, it's impossible. Don't even try to do it because at three percent it doesn't work. And again, we're in this debt spiral, D E B T, 
not death, but sometimes they turn into death spirals if you're not smart. Um, just understand what it is. It just means that the fiat currency has to solve that loop that is otherwise unsolvable with pure mathematics, which just means the debt grows this fast and the GDP can't keep pace. So your debt balloon keeps expanding organically. And the thing that solves that, well, we'll just print more money. Greg, this is such a powerful thought experiment. And I, I actually, when I heard you first do this, I actually, I'm severely mathematically challenged, which is why I love you when you put stuff in numbers. <laughs> I, I literally just got, and for everyone who's listening, just get an Excel and actually do this for yourself. Oh, yeah. Put a four over a one, right? That's what we're talking about. A ratio of four, which is that's correct on the top, yeah. one on the bottom. And then multiply that four by 0.03. Right, that is the average rate of interest. Right, the service that's, and cost. That's that's all right. That, that means your yeah. denominator has to grow at twelve percent just to keep pace with yeah. your your. You're going to get a point one two, and that is twelve percent. So what that's then right. is global GDP growth? What is it? It's not twelve percent. It not might hit it this year, but it's impossible to hit it on a, a sustainable basis. It just is impossible. Exactly. Even China. China does what, like five percent, something like that, and they're way ahead. Yeah. Of Again, their numbers are. Look, I, I, I'll just bring it back. There would be pockets of the world that, that, that surpass that. But if you look at the world as a whole, that's what you have to look at because it's a, it's, a, it's a closed system. It's called the world, okay? And it's a closed system and it is impossible for the world to skate themselves on side. And, and the difference there, what do you call it? Is like the error, the error or something? So I call it an error term. In mathematics, an error term is uh, is needed when both sides of the equation don't balance, okay? Or the numerator and the denominator don't balance. It means that to solve the, uh, the formula, the mathematical formula, you need this thing called an error term because it doesn't otherwise exist. So you plug in the error term to solve the formula and that is fiat money printing. Exactly. So that is just the simplest, most, I think, eloquent bull case, right, for why central banks are going to continue to print, right? Oh, and, and when I, they don't have a choice. They just, they there's no choice. choice. Yeah, there's yeah. no choice, right? So then when I think about, okay, and the, let's combine that with Stan Druckenmiller, what he said, that the dollar mm -hmm. is going to lose reserve status over the course of the next 15 years. Then you start asking yourself, well, okay, what is going to be the replacement? Right. Like, let's just let's just start. Let's just start coming up with possible solutions here. Right. So there's yeah. the digital renminbi. Right. Or you want whatever China is trying to. No, do, that's right? fiat. Don't 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 let on any central but, bank digital currency is just right. fiat. It is fiat. It's even worse than fiat because they'll put, you know, time expiration limits on, on when you can. Spend. Or they like, could do that. Or that's that's somewhat bad. You know, what's even worse is the fact they track you. And they say, oh, so you were at this political demonstration because I saw you spent some money at a, at a restaurant right in the area. So, you know, there's there's digital fiat with tracking. Yeah. Uh, but I'm with you. But like, let's just lay out what are the different even potential options, right? You've got so another dominant country like the U.S. could essentially try to be the issuer of the global reserve currency. At this rate, it's, I agree with you. It's very unlikely. But China is one Potential oh, oh. Right? so you're yeah. saying of a, of a reserve currency that's a fiat? Yeah, that's that's yeah. so. A, so it could be have... another fiat country, right? It could be yeah. a, a basket of different fiats that that yeah. could be another option as well. There could be that kind of um, like the Bancor, right? That got proposed at um, 
you know, the original Bretton Woods back in 1944. And okay. like the special drawing rights thing from the IMF. SDR, yeah, yeah special drawing yeah. rights, yeah. And then and then there's Bitcoin, right? And, and you kind of look at each one of these things and you say, well, none of these really seem, these all seem like a bit of a long shot at the end of the day, but you're kind of looking at four major choices, unless I'm forgetting one. And to me, Bitcoin doesn't seem any crazier than any of the rest. In fact, it probably seems like the best option. Well, the Bitcoin uh, is the solution because here, why? Because Bitcoin is digital energy, okay? Mm -hmm. And digital energy as a store of value, Michael Saylor lays it out so eloquently, but digital energy um, is a natural, if I have natural resource energy in the ground, I'm a Canadian or I'm Russia, Saudi Arabia, there's a there's a petrodollar link there, but let's just assume Saudi Arabia is in the same uh, in the same boat. Um, they're pumping valuable natural resource energy out of the ground, and currently they're being paid in U.S. dollars. Hmm. And so they're getting a funny money for valuable digital for valuable natural energy. Wouldn't it be smarter for them to take payment in digital energy for their natural energy? Wouldn't it be smart for them to ask for payment in Bitcoin for oil or natural gas? I think so. I think that in the future, very soon, not very soon, you know, not, you know, within, within a shorter time period than Mr. Druckenmiller laid out, which was 15 years, I think that natural gas and oil start getting priced in Bitcoin. And when that happens, that's the de facto change where Bitcoin becomes the reserve asset of the world. At that point, will there be layer two and layer three functionality of Bitcoin that allows it to be also the reserve currency of the world? I'm thinking yes, but let's just talk right now. It will be the reserve asset, which means Russia would want to hold Bitcoin as treasury reserves in the form of uh, uh, payment for their valuable natural resources uh, rather than U.S. treasuries or U.S. dollars, it's just come on. It's only smart. Don't don't overthink this. I, I'm so and look, I, I I hear myself right. I get it. You're talking about this thing. A lot of people still don't really understand what Bitcoin is. When you say, hey, this has a real shot at becoming the reserve currency or the reserve asset of choice of nations around the world, it sounds pretty out there, right? But at the same time, I think. If you are saying, hey, I do not believe this, then I think you should take a second to think about what are the serious alternatives that exist? What is the position then that you are advocating for, right? Because it's a very limited list of possibilities that's something that could replace the US dollar. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I think that the US dollar will continue to be the global reserve currency, you are going against his history and what has historically right. happened. If you go all the way back to 1400, every single uh, reserve currency it comes to an end. The regime always comes to an end. So actually yeah. the highest burden of proof should be on people who say it's going to continue to be the US dollar because you're essentially bucking a you know, 600 year historical trend. So, so that's great. You're totally right. Um, the question becomes what will replace it. Right. Uh, but but here's, here's a bigger uh, consideration that I always point out. Are you 100% certain? that it will be continued to be the US dollar. And anyone who says they are 100% certain, you should just, you know, pack them up and send send them off to the loony bin because guys, you cannot be 100% certain about something like this. So you need to play probabilities and you need to do expected value analysis. 
um, again, you need to hedge the risks. And I'm not 100% certain that it will become the reserve asset of the world. By the same token, I think it's far greater than 0% chance that it will become, which Peter Schiff would tell you it's 0%. And therein lies the, uh, the reality. You need to base your investment thesis on a probability, a spectrum, whether it's a bell-shaped or it's asymmetric to the to the upside probability distribution and i'm telling you anyone who's not doing that math is not qualified to be a an institutional or personal investor because it's only mathematics it's about hedging risks do i want the us dollar to fail i do not let me be no. very clear i do I not want it to fail yeah but it's not with 100% certainty that I know that it won't fail. Therefore, I need to take precautions just for myself and for my children and for storing your wealth in something that won't be debased because every four years you get a new politician in town or in power that comes in and says, I'm going to fix all the problems of the former administrations. And none of those politicians get in there and say, that's it. We're solving the debt crisis. Why? Because they'll never get another term after this one term, right? It's impossible. So, you know, it's just the way it's set up. Yes, it used to be the British pound. Before that, you know, there's history always shows that the reserve currencies of the world have approximately a hundred year uh, natural life. And the U.S. is pushing right up against that right now. The U.S. has a lot of things in its favor. We mentioned Bretton Woods. We mentioned the petrodollar. We mentioned Saudi Arabia getting de facto protection from the U.S. provided their oil is priced in U.S. dollars. There's so many different things that will help the U.S. dollar to stay as the reserve currency of the world. But even Stan Druckenmiller says, and he's way smarter than I am, he puts it at 15 years, okay? And I'll just say, look, Stan, yeah, we're both playing the same probability game. And do I think it'll be less than 15 years? I'm not certain. I am, I'm thinking, though, that there is, again, that probability distribution, and I need to hedge myself against that outcome. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, I, I love the way you just framed that, right? Because traders know, right, the future is just, it's a distribution of different probabilities, right? And one of the big impacts among, among many, right, of what the U.S. is essentially doing with kind of, we might already be in an era of soft yield curve control, but certainly they do not have the ability to let long-term yields rise to probably the, the level where they ought to be. Um, so the, one, of the, one of the big uh, externalities of that is that you don't have a great representation of risk, of, of default against the U.S., where that risk does pop up in this little esoteric market called CDS, credit default swaps. And I know you've talked about this, so tell us a little bit, what is the credit default swap as an instrument? Why is that market so important? Wow, great question. So let's let's hit your first uh, your first statement. Yes, you're 100% correct. Uh, in there is, there is a form of yield curve control taking place right now. It's not formal. They're not pegging the 10-year rate at a specific amount, but they are purchasing 120 million billion, excuse me, 120 billion dollars worth of bonds every month. Uh, with a buyer the size of that, an elephant in the room, keeping downward pressure on rates, it's impossible that the true open market risk uh, measurement 
is properly being reflected in right. the market. So Mr. Druckenmiller would have said, okay, if there was no Fed elephant in the room, what would true uh, interest rates be in the 10 year? And right now it's at 160. And he might say that it should be around three and a half percent probably. I didn't hear him specifically say it, but that's my gut. If there was no Fed uh, presence in the market with uh, all the concerns going forward, I would say the US 10 year would be at about three and a half percent. That's just my gut. Uh, feeling now, what is a three and a half? Excuse me. Yeah, that that rate, three and a half percent. What is that? Well, typically over the last history of U.S. Treasury, they've only been concerned about interest rate or inflation expectations. Right, that nominal yield of three and a half percent had to protect you against the inflation in the market, and therefore you subtract a nominal yield excuse me, you subtract the interest rate from the nominal yield and you get a real return, a real rate, okay? That real rate, again, only really considered inflation. Well, having been a credit trader for the last 30 years, I argue that that 3.5% or even today's 1.6% includes a small portion of credit risk. So you have most of it's due to inflation expectations, but a small portion of it has to be due to credit risk. Right. And why is that? Well, because countries regular de regularly default. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, well, the U.S. will never default. And I'd say, okay, you're, to you're pretty well correct in that uh, statement, but you... Aren't, you cannot be certain because Argentina, Venezuela, you know, the serial defaulters in the world, uh, the countries default on a regular basis. Now, is Canada, uh, the United States? No, it's not. It's, it's a higher credit risk. So you can actually go to a market that's a beautiful market. It's a derivatives market called a credit default swap market. And the credit default swap market starts as a five-year contract that will price the risk of default of it started in the corporate bond markets. So, you know, XYZ Corp had a long-term debt outstanding, but none of them had, none of them, all of them, excuse me, always had a exactly a five-year risk measurement. And the credit default swap guys wanted to create a credit index. And in order to create an index, they needed a generic term, which was the five-year term. And since none, all, not all companies always have a five-year bond outstanding, they created a synthetic one called a credit default swap. And that five-year swap reflects the risk of default of that particular entity. There's a reference obligation in it. That reference obligation refers to one of the cash bonds that are outstanding in the market of that particular name. And the market being the buyers and sellers of credit default swaps will set a price of the default premium that's required to pay for company XYZ. Now that's one company and they put together uh, an index of a hundred of these different companies. Each one of them marginally different in terms of their default, their premium that they're paying and they calculate a credit index. So it's a beautiful thing so that now we have a credit index that is at least well more liquid than the equity indices are, and it can be measured on an 
day-by-day -day basis, right. much like the equity indices are measured. And that's why the five-year term was picked. Then after 90 days, that five-year term rolls down to four and three quarters years, and they reissue another five-year on the run contract. So each name has a beautiful series of credit uh, pricing from zero years every 90 days all the way out to five years okay and you have these various contracts that trade in the market and price credit risk that was for corporations and it graduate you know graduated to to countries as well so yes you can go to the same CDS pricing and look at it for various countries in the world and I'll just tell you that right now the US is at about 10 basis points, which means it costs you $10,000 per year to insure $10 million of US Treasury debt against default. And why is someone paying that? Well, because they're worried. Much like you own fire insurance on your house, you don't want your house to burn down, but you know there's a risk that you have a fire. So you buy insurance. Well, the same thing with the US Treasury. Now that 10 basis points is not a lot, but it's not zero. Therefore, I point right to the market and I say, people in the market are telling me that there's a chance the US Treasury defaults. It's not huge, but it's not zero. So take that amount, store it in your head and say, okay, the US Treasury's at 10 basis points in the five-year term, slightly under it right now. Canada, which is my home country, is actually rated by the credit rating agencies one notch higher than the United States, which means it's actually a better credit in the opinion of the credit rating agencies than the United States Treasury is. Their word is it's gold foolish. in your opinion, am I correct? Pardon me? Their word is gold in your opinion, am I correct? <laughs> Something. Here, here, here's, here, here's what I would say is it's an opinion and it's wrong because the market even though Canada's rated AAA by S&P and the United States is rated AA+, which is one notch below AAA, Canada's credit default spread, and remember the wider the spread, the worse or the higher the premium, is about 40, 40. Okay, so it's four times higher than what the United States has to pay for, and it's not the United States paying it, it's what a, a, a open market participant would pay a counterparty for protection on the United States, an open market participant has to pay four times as much to insure 10 million of Canadian debt. Mm. Well, does that tell you then that the market believes that it's actually a less, a better credit than the United States or worse? And very simply, the answer is yes, it's worse as it should be because we're about one-tenth the size of the economy. We, uh, we sort of rank up there with California. As a country, we rank up there with the state of California. Um, not that California is a bad place, but that's what Canada is on a, on a, you know, apples to apples basis. So again, I always look to the credit default swap markets as truth. It's what the open markets are paying. There's no Fed manipulation in there. This is open market participants pricing credit risk on sovereign nations. So, Greg, can you give us a size? How big is this market? Um, so nobody knows. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, the derivatives markets of them, you know, in total, and that's options, swaps, foreign exchange contracts, is about 
2.3 quadrillion in size. <laughs> 2.3 quadrillion is about 23 times the size of the US debt market. Okay, so like you just, so I can't tell you because there's, you know, these, this is the, a lot of these contracts are, uh, uh, you know, uh, specific to one count, counterparty A, counterparty B, and most of them net out. But the problem is, if one of the counterparties fails, then half of the equation is now at risk because moot. if you, pardon me? Yeah, it becomes moot. I mean, my... it, it does. And this is what, so I don't know how big they are. I will tell you that there's times when it's more active. There's certainly countries it's more active on. So for example, Turkey, which is a G20 country, and we know the problems they're having there. I'm, I'm certain that the CDS, the credit default swap, uh, trades much more frequently on Turkey than it trades on Canada, let's say. Um, I don't care <laughs> because a price is a price. And uh, that price is reflective at, of any, at any moment of time of the market's uh, risk assessment for that country. So yeah, Turkey's a G20 country. Turkey will uh, currently is, you know, if, the U if Canada's four times the US, Turkey is eight times Canada. Okay, so that means Turkey is 30 times the United States in terms of risk, as it should be, okay? But that's a market that's trading and people, you know, there's a probability of default there that is, uh, we could check the math, but it's probably around 8% likelihood that Turkey defaults. Um, that's still low, but 8% is pretty darn big if you think, oh, countries never default. Well, come on, guys, give your head a shake. It happens all the time. I don't want it to happen to Canada but Canada's not in good shape. And if it happens to Canada, the contagion from Canada to the United States will be more than zero. Why? Well, because Canada is within the top two global trading partners of the United States, right? So again, there, <clears throat> there's always ebbs and flows. There's contagion. There's not, you know, domino or knock-on effects. But don't be foolish to say it can never happen. So here's, here's my worry when we're talking about this, right? We're talking about one of the last markets where risk is priced uh, in terms of countries issuing debt. And it seems to you, like, we can't even answer how, how big is this market, right? It seems like this kind of weird, I know CDS, they you know, had their day in the sun, if you want to call it that, during 2008, 2009, right? There's, it became known what these things were called. This is a okay. weird institute, instrument for institutional finance, right? Um, I, I just, it's well, you understand how important it is though, right? Because credit ranks has a prior claim in the capital structure than equity. Right. You'd think that the equity guys would want to know <laughs> what the credit markets are saying. And the easiest way for them to know is if there's some sort of credit index, much like uh, you know, there is an equity index, like the Dow is quoted every day. Wouldn't it be wonderful if actually someone quoted where the IG index was, the investment grade index was on a daily basis for people that watch CNBC? I know it would lose 99% of the viewers, but it would be logical that they would quote that index since that index is actually more important than the equity index, given it has prior claim in the capital structure, right? And even I take issue with any equity analyst that has no idea where the debt of a capital of, of a company trades, even though they're giving an investment opinion on the equity, right? 
and and I, I could bet you dollars to donuts that you go out there and five out of 10 equity analysts have no clue what the credit rating is or what level the debt of a given company trades, even though they're evaluating the equity. I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. And when things melt down, the equity analysts run to the bond guys and they're like, what the hell's happening to my equity? And I just go very simply, well, knucklehead, your equities were zero because the bonds are trading at 40 cents on the dollar. And unless the bonds trade at 100 cents on the dollar, your equities were zero. 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 Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so like there's just so many knock on effects and that's why credit runs the world. Very simply, you need to understand credit. If you don't understand credit and you're invested in equities, which is 99% or 96% of the world, then you might be jumping over perhaps a very important component of the valuation of your equity because again, if the credit is not worth a hundred cents on the dollar, your equity is worth zero. Your equity becomes an option. So Greg, let me ask you, let me ask you this. What is capital structure? Does it even exist if the Fed is backstopping essentially? So great questions. Yeah. So firstly, so I, I, I frequently go back to my corporate days, but let's talk about what capital structure is. So capital yes, structure right. is your priority of claim in a, in a corporation. And typically it'll go like this. You'll have your bank debt, which is the highest, uh, highest uh, claim in that if your bank is not paid back a hundred cents on the dollar, anything below you is worth zero. Now, what could be below you? Well, let's start with an investment grade corporation. Typically, an investment corp grade corporation has its bank debt and its bonds are rated what's called pari passu. They have the same priority of claim. But after the bonds, the senior bonds, you can have things like convertible debt. You can have preferred shares. You have common shares. Okay. Each successive level in the capital structure, unless the prior level is worth 100% of its parity or par, mm. your level is worth zero. Now, worth means your claim is worth zero. It doesn't mean you don't have option value that you could skate your claim back on side, but it is a priority of claim value. So that was investment grade corporations where the debt of the corporation at the bank level and the bonds that are issued to the public market rank Pari passu. In a high yield, it's a little different. You have your bank debt, and then one notch below that, you'll have your public bonds. Okay, so they don't rank pari passu, but that's just one more little uh, notch in the capital structure. So you'll have bank debt, you'll have public bonds, you'll have subordinate public bonds, you'll have convertible subordinate equity, uh, convertible subordinate bonds, convertible into equity, which you know is a, a fancy. Uh, options uh, option structure then below that you'll have preferred shares below that you'll have your common shares and uh, then on your common shares you'll have options and all of that stuff options are not part of the capital structure but they help you hedge all different parts of the the, the prior ranking capital structure so the neat thing is that's a corporation in a government though in a government there is no equity in the government per se there is your bonds outstanding, the governments frequently uh, or treasuries are frequently held on the balance sheets of banks. So therefore think of that as a loan, the same thing. They're all up here. They're all in the, in the highest level, but every single other credit instrument in the world is priced off of the US treasury 
at the very highest level. So it is very important to understand that the U.S. Treasury rates set rates for the rest of the world, whether they're equity rates, because there's an implied equity return that you need to get if the U.S. Treasury is paying this much. And that's why you're seeing things like right now, you're, people are arguing, well, the high tech uh, growth uh, companies are getting knocked uh, back because their discount rate, their implied rate of discounting the cash flows are being impacted by treasury inflation expectations at the top level. Everything flows down, cascades down in terms of U.S. Treasury add a little bit more risk for this uh, for this uh, tranche, add a little bit more risk for this tranche. When you get down to the equity level, it's just a cumulative impact of all of the different levels of the capital structure. So your question, roundabout answer, what happens when the Fred, Fed can just print money? Well, one thing that happens is that's an artificial rate at the top. It should be much higher, as Stanley Druckenmiller would point out. Then the second thing that happens is, in the situation of banks, again, they bail out the financial system. So what happened in 2008, 2009 with the global financial crisis was really simply, they just transferred leverage from the financial system onto the balance sheets of the governments. Right. And they never tried to pay it back. Every time they would uh, you know, uh, slow down their quantitative easing, there would be a taper tantrum, right? They called it the taper tantrum. They were going to taper the uh, the quantitative easing. Well, as soon as they announced any sort of tapering, the equity markets had a fit and the Fed got nervous and said, excuse me, um, okay, no more tapering, no more. Oh, I'm going to continue to feed the, uh, the cocaine to the addict, right? And so that's what happens. Wow, you just really helped me connect a lot of dots. I've heard that, and even if you go back before 0809, you could even say that the, the first risk bubble that really occurred where they were kicked it upstairs essentially was the dot-com bubble burst in 01, right? No, 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 it was long-term capital management. So have you read the book, When Genius Failed? You know, I actually you need have, to. it's right there, back on the- So that was 1998, okay? So uh -huh. it's a beautiful book, uh, it's a beautiful, example of how silly some Nobel Prize winners can be. It's mm -hmm. another example of leaving your, levering yourself almost 100 to 1, <laughs> mm -hmm. which they were. And it's another example of Wall Street running to a provider of insurance and purchasing as much insurance from this provider as possible and thinking they were in good hands when in fact they're purchasing it from a house that's already you know, it's an inferno. They're purchasing insurance from a house that's an inferno called long-term capital management because they had $1 of equity for every $100 of insurance they were selling. Yeah, Gosh, yeah. guys, the math was retarded. And there were two Nobel Prize winners there. It's just yeah. sick. It's actually sick that these people can put a degree on their wall and say, yes, I passed mathematics. Like, it should be revoked. You should get your mathematical degree taken away from you when you're that brain, uh, you know, you have that big a brain fart. Well, I, I think uh, it might go down as one of the great ironies of all time that a place that called itself long-term capital manage management was basing all their models on like four or five years of data, was it? Oh, okay. um, isn't that crazy? Yeah, a whole four or five. We're at 99% confidence interval based on six years of data. Guys, don't even, oh, if you could possibly even say that with a straight face, then then I think you might be actually 
uh, well, there's a word for it. Let's just say that they probably knew what they were saying. They were hoping people believed what they were saying because they certainly could not possibly have believed what they were saying. Okay, I'd love to get your take on this. So if you, one of the chapters in that book by Roger Lowenstein, they called it, um, they essentially outline long-term capital's uh, strategy and they called them the central bank of volatility. And they were the biggest sellers of volatility on the market, basically. So what is selling? So let's stop right there. When you are a seller of volatility, what are you selling? I would say insurance, insurance, mm -hmm. just insurance. That's what you're selling because everything volatility is a measure of risk. And when you've sold volatility to somebody, you have allowed that person to hedge their risk. In other words, you've allowed that person to take out insurance against volatility. So it, you're exactly right. And one thing I'll just connect. So we actually, I was talking about this, Danielle DeMartino Booth. I'm not sure if you know her. She came on the podcast. I actually, ago. I do know who she is. I, I don't follow her, but I've seen some of her writing and, and certainly her opinions. Yes. She's lovely. She's brilliant, brilliant person. She actually traces the root of this problem back before long-term capital management, actually to right around when you were getting your start in financial markets, which was actually Alan Greenspan after Black Monday essentially getting out and he that was the first time that there was essentially the creation of the fed put or the greenspan put right where previous uh fed chairman right if you look at a guy like paul volcker um yeah. or william mcchesney martin these guys didn't care quite so much about what was going on in equity markets and if you look at alan greenspan he was the first one to actually have a bloomberg terminal right and he wanted a report uh, delivered to him about how the stock market was doing and the european stock market was doing so I mean, I don't know how much you can, you want to go back in history here, but you could lay at least a pretty large portion of this at the feet of Alan Greenspan as well. Uh, okay, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not his fault that banks are 25 to 1 levered, okay? It's just the way things are. So at whose feet do you lay it? I will lay it at the feet of the banking system, which Henry Ford a hundred years ago said, boy, if you understood how this system worked, there'd be a revolution in the morning. So Greenspan was smart enough to actually understand his ability to control such a, a lower portion of the capital structure. Why is that important though? Well, because so many people's pensions are invested in on a basis of let's just say 60% in equity and 40% in bonds. Yep. This 60% is so important for the future of the pension funding status that Greenspan took it upon himself to say, yeah, I better concern myself, concern myself with how this is doing. Because again, it's the future of the country. So it, was he wrong? You know, Greenspan's only human. Um, was he, w w morally, was he trying to do the right thing? I think so. Which, you know, but it did open a can of worms. So look, I've lived through four of these crises, 1988, I mentioned Latin American debt, 1998, long-term capital, 2008, global financial crisis or great financial crisis, and then 2020, 1920, is COVID. Every single time, the solution is always the same thing. It's the government backstop, the put. That's implied. That is, and, and you can say, well, that's capitalism. And I'd say that is true. And they'll say, uh, well, why aren't we communists then? And I'll say, well, I'll, you know, I'll take Margaret Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher and say, well, communism, communism only works until you run out of other people's money. Well, this is the difficulty in this whole thing is 
The capitalist system is built on leverage. That's just the way things are. Who is to blame for that? Well, I'm not sure, but banking is a whole lot older than the United States in itself, right? Banking is as old as uh, the, the beginnings of capitalism. So that's where it lies. To put it at the feet of Alan Greenspan would be wrong in my opinion. Um, did he, was he morally, was he smarter than a lot of the other Fed chairman? Or was he more advanced in terms of the way he thought about the capital structure? I would argue that, but don't forget in 1987, when portfolio insurance, this big thing, we, I can't lose money if I buy as much, uh, if I hedge myself in the futures market uh, and I have portfolio insurance and that was the latest, greatest thing to, to make sure that you didn't lose money in the stock market until the stock market falls 25% in one day because these <laughs> models don't work, right? So maybe you have to step in and calm the system. What does the Fed always do in times like that? Well, they open the spigots. They basically say, look, money is free. We are going to ensure that people that need to borrow money have access to that money because if the system gums up, it always starts in the plumbing of the credit system. And who controls the plumbing of the credit system? The central banks. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily trying to cast, cast blame here. I'm just trying to understand. I mean, even a lot of the oh. stuff that we're talking about, it's... She's, she, I, I'm not saying it's not casting blame. I just want, I, I want to make sure people understand that, you, you know, it's not one person or one thing. It's actually a system. It's, it's, it's the system itself, the, the leverage in the system. Again, think about why, I'll throw this number out to you. Why is global, and this is just one example, why is global foreign exchange trading about 30 times the value of global trade? Have we thought about that for one sec? What is the purest form of foreign exchange? Well, it's to satisfy global trade imbalances or global trade uh, uh, products, you know, from company A to company, uh, country A to country B. Well, then why is 30 times that amount traded? Because people are speculating, because people are using leverage to try and increase their returns in various markets uh, and pretend that they're adding value to, uh, to a system. They va add value to a system until the system has to socialize your losses, right? That's exactly what happened yeah. with long-term capital. They, they believe they had a model that worked that would allow them to, to leverage themselves 90 to one. And then when their model blew up, they run to the guy and say, Hey, bail me out. And so they would have accrued all the upside if their model hadn't blown up. And then to the downside, they run for a bailout. It's asymmetric. It's socializing losses. And when you socialize losses in a capitalist system, which we have continually done, that's when you get into trouble. And that's when a capitalist system doesn't work anymore. You're privatizing gains, socializing losses, right? Um, Correct. A hundred percent. Right. And so I'll just give you, so you've been uh, in finance for, you know, 30, 30, 40 years. I have not, I have no background in finance. And I will tell you just from, from an outsider's perspective, wh why, why does this matter so much? Why does it matter so much that we socialize losses? I had this very simple conception of what money or wealth was. It was dollars, right? And then you kind of learn about how people in finance think about wealth and money. And you're essentially, you know, you hold some portion of your wealth in dollars, but you want a good portion in bonds and stocks and uh, commodities or crypto or these various different asset classes. And 
you, you change your framework to think, well, my wealth isn't really dollars. It's this invisible thing that I'm transferring across all of these different, I'm kind of moving in and out of these different asset classes. So then, then you start to think to yourself, well, what is this invisible thing that I'm moving across all of these different buckets? And the answer that I've come up with is it is time. It is okay. money, wealth is a claim on others' time. And the reason why you should care so much when those losses are socialized, what are governments, they're stealing your time. They're yes. stealing the time of their citizens. Can and I add one thing? That was beautifully yeah. what you said. I'm going to add it's time plus energy. Okay? Right. It's time plus energy. That's what value is. Okay? And then we go back to Michael Saylor, who's the beautiful rocket yeah. scientist that brings this all back to a closed system. And a closed system, a pure hydraulic system or power system, conservation of energy. Whereas a fiat system, he calls it an open system. It leaks energy. Yeah. A fiat system is leaky and open systems don't work. So think about if you have a hydraulic system that has a leak in it. Well, your hydraulics don't work, okay? Your backhoe doesn't work. That's the same thing as a fiat system which socializes losses, which steals your time and energy by socializing losses. So yes, I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to make that tangibly felt, like what does that really mean stealing my time? I'm still free as a citizen here to go around and do what I want. It To me, where a lot of this shows up is just in terms of wage and, and pricing power, right? Mm -hmm. And when you, so, just when this is kind of a harder thing to actually put your finger on, but th why are so many people interested in why do so many people know who the Fed chairman is now compared to the 1970s and 80s, right? Why do so many people, you know, we run a, a media company that produces content on crypto and macro. You know who we get? We get about, you know, we get a good percentage of people who you would think investors. We also get people who work at McDonald's and people who do like hedge lawnmower. Why, why is that? Why do suddenly people care about all this stuff? because it's not working, because the plumbing, the machinery is broken. And when stuff is working, nobody pays attention. It doesn't matter. You don't care what's under the hood if it's serving you. But the thing is, it's not working right now. It's not working for the average person. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> I would argue though that this isn't that different from when I grew up, okay? So I'm 57, mm -hmm. um, I'm probably, I'm gonna, suggest that you I'm almost twice your age. I'm almost twice your age. Okay, so here, here's the cool age. thing, all right? So when I was your age, or perhaps a little younger, like when I was in my uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, I had some pretty physical labor jobs, including uh, uh, roof tiling, okay? So putting asphalt shingles on roofs. And probably at the end of the day, I don't even remember what my total pay was, but let's say at the end of the day, and this is pre-tax, I may have made 35 bucks, okay? Working in the hot sun, I trust me, you should see my skin was like leather in my hands. I could never clean, get clean hands. They just don't clean. Uh, you're sweating so much that you, 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 you know, you're delirious on the roof and you make 35 bucks, okay? Pre-tax, but let's just assume that's 35 bucks. And all the energy I put in to that roof that improved the value of that house by a certain amount gets transferred to me as $35 in fiat money, which when I need to use it, which isn't even now, okay, I'm not even using now the 35 bucks that I 
needed or that I earned when I was 20, it's still there. Do you think today that that 35 bucks is anywhere near worth the amount of energy and time I put into that roof? If I, if I kept that money in fiat dollars, like, isn't that sort of embarrassing? I don't even think it would be worth a dollar 70. Okay. Like literally that's how much the debasement would have impacted all that energy and time I put into that roof. And you know, this is just what it's about. It's, it's okay. So as long as you understand the way the system works, then don't store your value in something that's going to be debased. Okay. Um, look, I spent 30 years trading bonds. I, I cannot look anyone in the eyes right now and tell them you should own bonds. I cannot, it, it, I'm a very honest guy. And I'm like, if you own bonds right now, you might, certainly you failed mathematics or you manage money as a bond manager and you're trying to pretend you are still a value add to society. Um, I'm not saying you're a draw on society, but the contracts that you own, which is a fiat contract, are guaranteed to debase. You need to store your value of your time and energy in something that does not debase. Doesn't mean that fiat is not good for facilitating cross-border trade for avoiding three cows for a three three chickens for a cow you know what i mean like you just need to you need to understand what fiat is in the short term versus storing your value in fiat for the long term because you're guaranteed to be debased so greg let's get back to something though because one th- you know, you talked about a couple of these guys. Um, I can't even remember if this was earlier in the podcast before when we were talking about that helped educate you in the beginning. And there are some really loud advocates about Bitcoin. And what I think people are really good at is pointing out what the problem is. But in in my estimation, it, it, it sound I don't think they mean this, but this is how it sounds, right? To someone who's not really listening to their to what they're saying with nuances, they sound like they want the fiat system to fail. And I am here saying, I do not want this fiat system to fail. I think that's, uh-huh. I think that would be a really negative outcome for everyone, including oh, yeah. people who transferred over to a Bitcoin standard, right? Oh, the, um, it would be, yes, I agree a hundred percent. You got to be careful when you're, you're passionate about something and you're making a point. It doesn't mean that there can't be two parallel systems that exist though. Yeah. And that's the key. We need these two parallel systems to exist. So what does that actually look like? I've actually never really heard someone flesh out. What does it look like? Let's say, let's say that um, governments around the world agree that, hey, I listen to Greg Foss on, on the margin uh, because most of the heads of governments <laughs> listen to this podcast. Uh, and, and they say, this guy's making dangerous amounts of sense. We are going to switch over. We're all going to decide overnight that Bitcoin is a new reserve currency, but you know, we can't exactly just totally eliminate this system that we have. How are these two systems going to work in parallel with one another? Sort of like they have up until now, um, because you will never get a coordinated, uh, transfer. You'll get one country that does it. And then much like a cartel, Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. And then one of the people in the cartel breaks the cartel. And then everyone in the cartel starts doing what they told everyone they wouldn't do. Right. So, you know, you need to, um, it's a process. You, I, I firmly believe there will be a country that in, in due course announces that they're holding Bitcoin as a reserve asset on their balance Mm -hmm. sheet. And as soon as that happens, 
other countries, for example, Canada, who sold all our gold, I think four or five years ago, we sold it all. We have no gold. Haiti has more gold than Canada does. God darn it, that's embarrassing given the amount of gold mines and, and gold mining exploration companies we have in this country. But nonetheless, we have zero gold. And I would love for the benefit of my kids that Canada comes out or a province in Canada comes out, an energy intensive province of Canada. So uh, let's say Alberta, just, just suppose that Alberta comes out and says, we have a surplus of natural resource energy in our ground and we're gonna hold digital energy on our balance sheet. Mm. Wow, that would blow me away. And would it cause other people or other uh, countries or provinces to think that Alberta may be onto something? And I promise you it would. Much like high yield bonds were in Canada at the very outset when I, start, when I was the first high yield bond trader in Canada, um, no accounts wanted anything to do with them. Basically, all they wanted to do was sell me their debt that they had bought at the wrong price and had collapsed to levels that were reflecting distress. I was a conduit for them selling me debt and basically I shipped it out of the country into the hands of smart U.S. buyers. And that was not a developed high yield market. That was just an asymmetric return to the downside for that bond investor. And basically I said, guys, you shouldn't be sometimes just selling this debt, much like I said to uh, the Bank of Can uh, Royal Bank of Canada on the Brady bond side. It's fallen to this level. I know you made a mistake buying it at 100 cents on the dollar, but at this level, maybe it makes sense because there's other people outside of your boundaries, i.e. U.S. high yield buyers that think it is value. And I tried to develop a market and it's tough, but eventually there was one account in the west coast of Canada that said, I'm going to base my entire bond mandate, my entire portfolio mandate on high yield bonds. And all the other accounts in Canada were like, the guy's a knucklehead, he'll never gain assets. Well, he started growing really quickly because people understood that there's a price for everything and risk versus return. And so he starts growing and stealing assets from other traditional bond managers and they're like how come this guy's taking my assets i.e my fees and then they realize because he's offering a service that i don't offer so then he was the first and then gradually there's two or three more and now after 20 years every single bond manager in canada has a high yield bucket because it makes sense because it diversifies risk because it's a separate asset class but i trust me 20 years ago, no one wanted anything to do with it. And as long as nobody else did it, you cover your eyes and you just say, okay, I don't have to do this in Canada. Well, this will be the same thing either at the provincial level uh, or at the bond asset management level or at the, we have not had a major Canadian corporation announced like uh, Michael Saylor, like a Tesla, like a, PayPal, we need a big Canadian corporation to embrace Bitcoin, to be the flag bearer in Canada. And as soon as that happens, again, it trickles. It trickles down and it increases adoption. So whether we're talking at the country level or at the provincial level or at the corporate level, we're seeing it happen around the world. And I promise you it eventually will happen here. I completely agree with you. And I think that you're totally right. The final boss 
uh, is kind of central banks um, or, or countries essentially putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And, you know, I, I will say, and, and then I want to get your perspective uh, kind of on, on different cycles uh, in Bitcoin as well. But I will say there, there a lot, for a long period of time, right, you heard, I, I will never forget, I, I heard Mike Novogratz say this in, uh, you know, 2018, mid-2018, when we were sitting at the absolute bottom. First, he called the bottom. Then he said, uh, you know, when Bitcoin was at about $5,000, and I thought he was nuts at the time. Uh, and then he said, you know, there will be a time, there will be, it's gradually and then all at once, and there will be a time when it will be unacceptable to not have a Bitcoin strategy. And he and, and other guys like him essentially repeated that over the course of the next one and a half years in that bear market. And, you know, I obviously have a lot of conviction in this space. I left, I was telling you, I was a management consultant. It was not a bad job. It was a pretty cushy job. I was based out of New York. I worked in the Empire State Building. I left that job to start a crypto conference business, which is what we were in the beginning. So I'm a little nuts. I've got a lot of conviction in the space. Uh, but, you know, during that period, it was hard to believe that that was going to be the case. I listened to these guys say this. I said, yeah, I hope so. Now I am, I'm watch I feel like I'm watching that really play out in real time. Um, because not only are you hearing this, from wealth management, like RIAs, and saying, hey, I gotta learn this stuff. You're hearing it from wealth managers, you're hearing it from macro hedge funds, you're hearing it from that group. You're starting to hear it from corporates. I think one of the biggest pieces of news that did not get enough attention was NYDIG uh, and their partnership with FIS, which would allow, you know, there are hundreds of US banks that you will now be able yes. to purchase Bitcoin through your existing account. That is huge, huge, huge news. Um, and it yeah. seems like the, the last big step to get taken here is a central bank um, to, to, you know, put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Um, and that's kind of, so Novogratz is a, you know, I have a lot of respect for him. Um, you also always have to be somewhat careful of someone who, you know, uh, well, look, everybody who's invested in, uh, digital assets right now, want them to succeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you always have to remember the source of the, uh, you know, so-called calling the bottom or whatever, but he, he, he's very good at understanding markets. Um, so let's look at NYDIG. I think Ross Stevens is one of the, you know, he's, he's undercover Michael Saylor. Uh, he's really, really, so he's the CEO or the chairman or something of NYDIG. I mean, I know he's uh stone, stone, something, uh, stone Ridge. Uh, stone Ridge. uh here's the neat thing. If you, you got to read his thinking, his shareholder newsletter, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and, and all of this to say is watch what they're doing, not what they are saying. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned this FIS thing with NYDIG. I actually think the bigger, uh, the bigger announcement with NYDIG was their funding partners in the latest capital yeah. raise. Okay, so Nidig raised money from George Soros, raised money from New York Life, raised Mass money Mutual. from Mass Mutual, raised money from Morgan Stanley. All right, these people didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Okay, they understand what what this could mean. Nidig could mean in terms of disintermediating their legacy businesses. Um, you don't need to see. Bitcoin on their balance sheets per se, uh, even though it's already on the balance sheets in a, in a minuscule way on mass mutual. Like I think they owned a, they bought a hundred million or something. I mean, that's embarrassing. They probably find a hundred million dollars in this. 
in the cushions of the couch in their waiting room, you know? So, uh, like, you know, you just need to understand what it means though, to invest in NIDIG at a senior level. Mm. And so that was huge. Um, Ross Stevens is doing an amazing job. Uh, ex Goldman Sachs guy. Oh, isn't that interesting? So is Novogratz ex something. I can't remember if he was, yeah, I know he's ex, uh, a uh, huge hedge fund, but uh, X, I think he got his start on the buy or on the sell side as well. Sell side being like the the investment bank uh, trading houses. All of this is to say, watch what they are doing, not what they are saying. And mm-hmm. you know, any central bank who's accumulating Bitcoin right now, and there's got to be more than a few, in my opinion, they're certainly not announcing it because they need to get so much in order to even move the needle that they could not even go out and say that they've decided to accumulate it without blowing a hole in their strategy of trying to buy it at a price that anywhere approaches where it's currently trading, right? I mean, one central bank coming out and saying they're going to buy some uh, some Bitcoin, I bet, or announce they own Bitcoin in a material way, uh, I think the price of Bitcoin can gap higher. Uh, you know, it'll you know, don't be shorted. That's all I would say. Don't be shorted. And by don't being shorted, I mean, you better own some. Because if you don't own any, you're irresponsibly short as it is. So you better get some. Okay. Greg, can I can I bully you for a price prediction? When you're looking at this cycle, where do you think Bitcoin could, could wind up? So my, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the eloquent uh, uh, fade here. Look, I'll give you a price prediction, but I won't give you a time. Or I'll give you a time, but I won't give you a price prediction. All right. So how about this? Um, where do I think Bitcoin ultimately goes to? Very simply, I think it gets measured in the multiple millions of dollars per Bitcoin. Uh, how do I get there? Very quickly, look, uh, total global financial assets including all debt, all, all real estate, all equities, all art, all gold, equals US dollar $900 trillion. Now, Novogratz is out there and uh, Sailor even uses only $400 trillion. Well, see, I'm a debt guy. Don't subtract my debt out of the equation. I'm an enterprise value. I want to know what the whole thing is worth, not just the market cap, okay? So that's why they use sort of market cap and I'm using something called enterprise value. So $900 trillion, $900 trillion. Uh, Let's say Bitcoin does become a global reserve asset, uh, you know, because energy is priced in Bitcoin. Is it crazy to think that of uh, that 900 trillion, 5% of the global wealth will be priced in Bitcoin or will be Bitcoin? Uh, So 5% of 900 trillion is 45 trillion, 45 trillion divided by 21 million is, oh my goodness, that's some real money right there Two over 2 million bucks of Bitcoin. That's at 5%. What if it's 10 or 15 or 20% of that, okay? You put your probabilities on that outcome. Again, it's such an asymmetric return distribution, meaning the tail is so long that right now at 60,000 or whatever it is, 50 or 60, I haven't even looked today. I swear to you, I don't even know what the price of Bitcoin is. I haven't looked today, but I'm assuming it's around 50 something, 56, 57. Um, And don't tell me what it is. because I don't care, I've, my, my time preference is longer than on a daily basis. Uh, it's a rounding error, okay? And I'll bring this all back to, it's a rounding error to where I think it could go, but then I bring this all back to the calculation of intrinsic value in Bitcoin that I have done using credit default swaps. 
And using credit default swaps, current open market rates on Bitcoin right now, I believe Bitcoin's worth between 110,000 and 160,000 US dollars today based on where credit default spreads are today. Now, as those credit default spreads widen because the world wisens up and says, man, the risk of country default is increasing and increasing and increasing, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin goes up by that. But right now, just based on my history, I'll tell you, I think Bitcoin's trading for less than half of its intrinsic value right now. So where do I think it goes? I think it goes higher. Is that fair? And I think it goes higher in my lifetime. And I think it goes way higher in my kid's lifetime. Greg, so there you Greg go. The, the parlance that we say is up only. Up only. That's what we say. Um, okay, we could, we could use that. We I'll, I'll tell you, that. I, I, I think that it is the best asymmetric trade I've ever seen in 30 years of trading risk. Is that fair? The, <laughs> That's pretty good. This is the best trade I have ever seen. And I've seen some really good ones, okay? We came through the 2008-2009 great financial crisis at the hedge fund I was working at. And we made, a, I'm not gonna, we, did, we did well. And the reason we did well is because we acted on trades that shouldn't have existed. When everyone else was too scared to act on those trades, I had some partners and con guys with conviction that said, we're gonna do this. And those were some amazing trades. This one is so much better than those trades. I can't even tell you. And people then said, wow, those are the best trades I've ever seen in my life. Well, this is so much better than that. So Greg, how do you play this? I mean, you've got this background as a trader. Do you ever feel tempted to trade in and out of this stuff? Is it just a buy? Oh, I trade it all the time. I, I will tell you, I trade it all the time because it's a core position and I always mm. trade core positions. Why? Because I like helping what I think I'm doing anyway is helping market uh, efficiency. I like being able to buy stuff when the price is lower than where I sold it before. And I'm not scared of paying more for it than when I sold it the last time if I think the information has changed to the upside. I will never be shorted. I will always own at least X percent in my portfolio called a core position. But that X percent can change. There's a bounce on that. And why is there a bounce? Because probabilities change, uh, risk conviction changes, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're feeling really, really bulled up. And then all of a sudden, three days later, you just got smacked because it's down from 64 down to 44. Now you better buy some at 44 if you thought it was really good value at 64. But if you, if you spent all your nickels at 64 and you have no more to buy at 44, then you're a putz, right? So, you know, you always got to manage this, uh, this risk uh, profile. And if you don't think you're a good trader, which I'm not saying I am, except that I spent 30 years at it and I never really blew up. Like it all, well, not even, I didn't blow up. Um, that's always the way I've managed risk. And if you, if you don't have that experience though, then you buy some on a continuous basis, dollar cost average, you put it in your safe or your IRA or whatever you want to do and you transfer it to your kids over time and you just said, look, I bought it and I bought it and I bought it. <clears throat> and until it reaches a price that is at least what its intrinsic value is right now, which is over $100,000 US per coin, don't think about it. Don't be fancy. Don't say I'm going to wait for a pullback because so many people who wait for a pullback never get in, even though they know never it's cheap. They're too smart by half, okay? What does that mean? 
They're too smart by a half is a bond trading expression. So let's say bonds are trading 40 to 42. Bid 40, offered at 42, good size on each side. And you've done your analysis and you think that at 42 cents on the dollar, these bonds ultimately should be worth over 85 cents on the dollar, okay? So over a double. But you get fancy and you go, instead of lifting the offer, which means don't even dicker, go in there and just lift the seller and just say, sold to me, I want to own 10 million. You go in and you go, I'm, I'm a better buyer. Uh, it's 40, 42. How about if I show a 41 bid? You know, do you think I'll get any bonds? You know, and you, you play around this stupid game. And ultimately, you bid him 40 and a half, or sorry, 41 and a half for the offer at 42. And he goes, fill or kill at 42. And you don't lift him, and you miss the trade. And then the trade, or the, 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 the framing of the market gets, uh, gets uh, um, uh, spread around the street. And they're like, we had 41 and a half, 42, nothing traded. And some guy goes, 42, you had a 42 offer? I'm 42 bid, go get me that offer. And that 42 offer is no longer there because he's like, wow, there's more buyers and maybe I'm selling too cheaply. Again, what did it mean? You were too smart by a half, okay? You dicked around for a half point on something that was worth at least 40 bond points higher. You're an idiot. Don't mess around with <laughs> rounding errors. You just missed the trade. Then you say, I want them at 43 and there's another buyer at 43 and ultimately the next trade's at 48 and you're like, you're like, I'll buy them at 48, but you're not disciplined enough to, and, and you end up missing the trade. And it's called being too smart by a half. Don't be mm. too smart by a half, okay? No one is smart enough to tell you exactly what things are worth. But when things are about half of its intrinsic value, and you're trying to mess around whether you should buy it at 50,000 or 52,000, but you won't buy it at 56,000, you're getting too fancy. So let's talk, I want to get your opinion, um, and I know where you've already been super generous with your time, but I just got to ask you this while you're here. Uh, one thing that it really interests me is if you move past Bitcoin along to the kind of out the, the, the framework that I have for looking at the, the other long tail of crypto assets is essentially a risk curve, right? Um, people are still coming up with buckets of different uh, kind of crypto assets. It might be a smart contract platform, maybe it's a privacy coin, whatever, whatever these things are. Um, but you know, you, you kind of have Bitcoin and then you've got this, this kind of long tail of different assets. What, what are your thoughts? Are you kind of a pure Bitcoin guy? Do you think there's value in some of these other projects, but you just haven't seen it yet? What do you follow in kind of that, that tail? Uh, so um, I'm 100% absorbed in Bitcoin and continuing to learn about that because I continue to learn about it. Um, and I'm not about to say there's no value in other projects. Uh, and by that, I will tell you I am invested in a company in uh, LA called ARCA, A-R-C-A. I'm not sure if you know Love Jeff Dorman. Guys. and He's fantastic. I used yeah. to trade high yield bonds with him. Okay, So uh, I actually invested in the company as an equity investor. I, I provided seed capital for them to bring this digital asset platform. And I'm still invested with them. And... Um, I'm telling you their results are not smoke and mirrors. They're fantastic and they're, they're a smart team and, mm. and they're way smarter than I am. And I'm not going to tell you that, um, I'm trying to recreate what they do because I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And <clears throat> Bitcoin solves a very specific thing for me. 
very specific, something I've been involved in for 30 years. Then if you get into things called DeFi and CeFi and NFTs and all this other stuff, I'm not saying there's not a use case for that. I'm just saying I was never really into that in my whole life anyway. So why am I going to get into that right now and pretend I'm some sort of expert? But I will manage my risk by investing in other companies that do it way better than I do. So that's my answer. Um, I believe that there is a lot of dangerous stuff going on out there. And I think the guys at ARCA would tell you the same thing. I don't believe this stuff that's going on with some of the other meme tokens and, and that is anywhere healthy. But I'm not going to blame the meme token. I'm going to blame the fact that there's so much money sloshing around the system that's given to people that have no idea how to invest, that they can turn a meme token into a multiple billion dollar uh, valuation. Um, Picking up nickels in front of a steamroller is never a good strategy, okay? Whether you're levering it and you're picking up these nickels because you think you can lever it 10 to 1 and that nickel turns into 50 cents, that'll blow up on you. So will uh, any tokens that are not based on or any altcoins that are not based on mathematics and decentralization. Um, but there's a lot of value out there currently measured by market cap that is way smarter than I am. I'll just focus on what I know. And I know that every single fixed income manager in the world should own Bitcoin. Uh, very simply because the fixed income contracts that they own are fixed income fiat contracts that are guaranteed to debase. <laughs> I can't say it any more simply. It's pure mathematics. That's what I've known for 30 years. I can price up and down, tell you how to price a bond using duration and convexity. I can tell you what a different, a change in spread is in my sleep. But I can't tell you whether a DeFi, CeFi, you know, NFT is going to be worth more or less based on, on that. That's not my job. I just don't know. That makes a lot of sense. That you, again, Greg, you're making dangerously good sense uh, on this podcast. I'm sure when all these world leaders who listen... Yeah, we'll, we'll make some progress on, on the big ones. <laughs> um, all right, Greg, this has been a ton of fun for us. It's a ton of digest just everything that you said. But if people want to find out more about you, your work, what's the best way to get in touch? You know, I'm flattered that I'm actually presenting in Miami. So I'm on a, nice. uh, on a at the Bitcoin conference. I'm on with three other guys that are, you know, they're superstars and I'm a pleb and I'll always be a pleb. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud Bitcoin pleb. Am I a Bitcoin maxi? Uh, in what I know, I am because I'm not going to pretend I know that this other stuff is no good. So I want to reiterate, I don't want hate mail from people that think that I'm non-other altcoins. I don't have the bandwidth to tell you that. And I'll let other experts on both sides of the aisle tell you uh, that. So how do they get in touch with me? Well, look, I am on Twitter for better or for worse. I can't <laughs> believe that. I'm so happy that there's people that actually listen to me. Um, so my, my Twitter handle is Foss, at Foss, Greg Foss. And uh, you know what? I love that community. I love, it's primarily Bitcoin. Uh, why? Again, because I'm not going to shit post about stuff I have no idea about. I try never to shit post. I try and take criticism as valuable to to teach me about what I how I'm seeing the world wrong. 
right? I always want to read research that goes counter to my opinion so that I can learn if I'm on the wrong side of a trade so that I can actually adjust my portfolio or risk spectrum accordingly. Um, so I'm there, I'm on Twitter, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm love doing podcasts. I am involved in a really, really cool energy company called Validus Power, hmm. which is uh, taking flare gas or it's taking stranded assets, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, the ability to uh, tap into the Trans Canada mainline uh, natural gas pipeline and produce uh, energy uh, from natural gas using a turbine engine. This is a jet turbine engine. This is not a small, uh, you know, farm uh, uh, diesel diesel generator. This is a jet turbine engine, 35 megawatts, where we can mine Bitcoin using stranded resources, stranded assets. We can we can redefine the energy grids in North America using this technology. So that's going back to my engineering background. That's what I was in undergrad. There was a reason I took turbo machinery in my fourth year as an elective, even though I didn't need it to graduate. I realize why I took that course now. And it's only because, uh, you know, I, I'm spiritual and there was a plan. I was supposed to know about turbo machinery. And turbo machinery was fun uh, because it was very challenging. I was in literally in classes with guys that are like Michael Saylor you know, walking computer mainframes that uh, they can't talk, right? Sailor's a walking computer mainframe that can actually put two sentences together, yeah. whereas most of these other guys are like, you know, you know, like Jaime the robot from Get Smart. So, um, but but that's what I was. And um, I took it and it was on Monday, Wednesdays and Friday mornings at 8 a.m. in the morning, all right? Mm. And I never missed a class, but Monday and Wednesdays was easy enough to get to, but Friday mornings at 8 a.m., that was a tough one, but there was a reason I took it. And uh, the reason I took it was to learn about this mechanical engineering beauty, beautiful thing called turbo machines or jet turbine engines that can take stranded natural gas or stranded energy assets and convert them into a mining, uh, Bitcoin mining revenue stream. So Validus Power, Bitcoin, Twitter, uh, Miami Bitcoin Conference, and otherwise just, uh, 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 you know, you and I are going to have a great relationship going forward. So if they're uh, looking for me and they need to go through you, I'd, uh, you can forward them my email. Well, here, here's the thing, Greg. I, I had this whole list of questions for you and I got to like a quarter of them. So, I mean, we got to do this again at some point. I'd be uh, honored. I would be honored. Sure. I mean, I, the, the, I, I, I can talk for a long time, as you guys have seen. Uh, but the reason I can is because I actually believe this can change the world. Okay, um, yeah. a lot of these other projects, I need to, I need to stress. Uh, while I understand what these other projects can do, none of them, in my opinion, are as deep as what Bitcoin can do. All right, yeah. and Bitcoin can actually change the world. I'm not saying these other ones won't, but their impact. I don't believe will be nearly as meaningful as if Bitcoin is adopted in various levels of uh, uh, store of value, of first law of thermodynamics, conservation of energy. Energy has always been a measure of, or the human's ability to use energy properly has always been a measure of their productivity and their standard of living. 
Well, Bitcoin is just a natural increase in the productivity of money, in the, in the technology of money that is able to store the value of your time. You mentioned this, the value of your time, the value of your energy or the value of your work that's produced today, stored for consumption in the future. And Sailor just mentioned on a uh, Kitco News, which is a brilliant uh, 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 interview. I'm not sure if you guys have seen it, but you got to watch it, where he goes, do you think Romans uh, constructed aqueducts and reservoirs because they uh, wanted some greater fool to come along and, uh, and pay them more for the water? No, they constructed it because they may have to use it. Okay, and well, that's what Bitcoin is. It's a store of value of energy that you may have to use in the future because it's the purest form of money ever created. So get some exposure to that, you guys. It's, it's so exciting from an engineer, which I am, and I'm not a good engineer, but at least I passed and I got enough marks that I was able to go down to a pretty cool school in the United States and experience everything you guys experience. And by the way, I'm going to point this out, and I've lived the U.S., uh, some of the U.S. Uh, ups and downs. I will include that uh, my roommate from Cornell University uh, was killed in 9-11. So, yeah, I'm really, well, I'm re really sorry to hear that. That's, uh, I'm sure that must have been really tough. It's, what it says is, I understand what the U.S. is about. I don't want that system to fail. I'm with okay. you. I'm with you. I think, and look, I think, I think that message that you just said, which was absolutely beautiful, by the way, that needs to get out more. And I, I will say, I think in Bitcoin overall, there's some great voices. I'm so proud that we, I'm so happy we could do this because your voice is a voice we need to raise up. Seriously, I'm serious. I, this is a, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I think there's some great work that people do but I think Bitcoin is reaching the point of global relevance where you need a more nuanced take. And that emotion that you're feeling right now, you don't want the system to burn down. You wanna do the best thing for people. You wanna look out for them. You need to get that message out there more. It needs to be less of the have fun, staying poor, all that stuff. I'm now, I'm very convinced that's counterproductive stuff. And that's why I'm so happy we can do this podcast today and get your voice out there because more people need to hear from Greg Foss. Well, thank you, man. And it's a pleasure. And, and by the way, I believe strongly in, uh, in Canada, the United States, I believe strongly in, uh, in service of our country. Um, and this is not about trying to tear down the proud uh, history of either of our countries. This is about trying to enhance our future because many people don't understand mathematics. And the easy thing to do is just to print money and pretend you're printing yourself to prosperity when actually what you're doing is you're borrowing from the future. You are stealing from your children, okay? So let's turn this narrative around. I'd be happy to come back. Um, it's been a pleasure and uh, I hope that uh, if anyone listened to the very end of this podcast, uh, I, uh, I look forward to, uh, to the next time when we can, uh, we can, uh, circle back and, uh, and hit, hit those questions. You didn't, uh, <laughs> you didn't have time to ask. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Greg. We'll do this again soon. I really appreciate the invite. Thanks for having me.